Welcome to another episode of the Pop Culture Shuffle with Joel Garcia. I am your host, Joel Garcia. On today's show, we're going to talk about a few things. First up, the Tom Holland Spider-Man films and why they're not as bad as everyone says they are. Then, I will briefly talk about the Aladdin sequel, The Return of Jafar, as well as King of Thieves. And finally, a short snippet from my radio show where I talk about Bond. James Bond. But first, let's get to Tom Holland. Now, of course, it's been a few years, and for the most part, we're now currently in the third Spider-Man film series. Yeah, the third Spider-Man film series. Like, think about it. 2002 was a long time ago. That was when, like, the first one came out, and, like, that was Tobey Maguire... And since then, in the past 18 years, we've gone with Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, Tom Holland. It's been a lot. Like, you, you look at it, you want a good comparison. The X-Men films started coming out in 2000. And that same universe, give or take a few cast changes, rewrites, and alterations, has been going on for 20 years, with the New Mutants being the last one ever. It's impressive. How there's been three reboots compared to the X-Men's not reboots. It's hard to call them reboots when they're still set in the same universe. When it comes to the Tom Holland films, they are good. However, it is also heavily debatable for a lot of reasons. While the previous film series were restricted to only Spider-Man, his characters, and villains, the Tom Holland films are part of the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Which is a big deal. Because in the first two series, they, were, they weren't able to feature other characters. He would never interact with, say, Wolverine or Daredevil or any other Marvel hero that just happened to be around the time. It probably helps that he was the only successful one alongside the X-Men and Blade. But the thing is that all three films were by different studios. Blade was by New Line. The X-Men were Fox and Spider-Man was Sony. So it was a bit impossible to think about, oh, let's put these characters together when they're owned by different studios. Now that they tried once or twice, there are stories and reports and rumors that have come out that they tried to put in a Wolverine and they even had Hugh Jackman ready to go, but they didn't bring his costume. Or how at one point they were actually going to have the Punisher show up, but instead it was a stunt double. It's a really unfortunate thing that we never got to see either Tobey Maguire or Andrew Garfield in interact with any other Marvel characters. For Toby, it makes sense. These movies came out at a time where superhero films were limited to only a handful of characters, where at best you'd have Spider-Man, Batman, and maybe Superman alongside the X-Men. Andrew Garfield films came out at a time where the Avengers were already a thing. There's only like a two-month difference between the Amazing Spider-Man and the Avengers. But Tom Holland, they even mentioned him before he made his debut. In the end of Ant-Man, they even said, oh, we have a guy who, who crawls up walls. And then in Civil War, he's right there. But here's the thing to remind, to, to remind everyone. Sony still owns the film rights to Spider-Man. And it is nothing short of a miracle they were able to work out an agreement after everything that happened with The Amazing Spider-Man, which is a long story. But let's just say it involves a lot of broken dreams. Despite all of that... There are fans who keep complaining about the changes they've made to accommodate his involvement in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. The first one is of a character who's not even in the movie, Uncle Ben. Now, in the first two film series, Uncle Ben was, of course, a major character. In the first Spider-Man series, he said the famous line, 
with great power comes great responsibility. In the second film series, he didn't say that, but he was still a major character for Peter. In this film series, he is nowhere to be seen. And people are legitimately angry about that. That there's no Uncle Ben. Where's Uncle Ben? Whatever happened to Ben? And he's technically there, but not in the way people want him to be. In Homecoming, it was subtly revealed that he, he had died recently, sometime before Civil War. Peter comments on Aunt May struggling with her life and undergoing a lot of changes. And there are other references to Uncle Ben, such as his suitcase. His suitcase appears as far from home, and we'll get to that in a minute. But this is the one time where it just makes sense to not feature Uncle Ben, because there's almost nothing else you can do with the character. Because the plot, the basic plot beats have already been following the first two movies, and at this point, you already know what's going to happen, so why even bother showing you? Like, here's the basic points. Uncle Ben and Peter have a, have a fight. They disagree on some. He tells him something motivational. And Peter, in some form or another, either is or not the cause of Uncle Ben's death. Shocked by this, and using his coincidentally newfound powers, decides to use his powers responsibly. There. Rinse, repeat, and do it again. The thing is that, for most people, they're probably just tired of doing that over and over again. And I know that people will look, will point out that other movies do the same thing over and over again. Whenever Batman gets a new movie, they always feature his origin. Every single incarnation, well most of them except I think the Adam West one, has the same origin where, oh, they ha they're going to a musical, a play or a movie, they leave the theater, they go down this hallway, and then the parents get shot. It's been in, ev in almost nearly every single Batman adaptation. From Batman the Anime Series, to Tim Burton films, all the way up to Joker, which isn't even a Batman film. It just happened to be at the end of the film. And I get why people are mad about it. It's the same with Man of Steel. In that movie, sure, it does a lot of the basic, oh, Krypton gets destroyed and let's put our baby in a, in a rocket. But it cuts out the part where the Kents find Kal-El. That's the one thing they don't do. They don't do the whole, oh look, the Kents found this baby in a rocket. What did they do with it? They don't do that. They just skip over that part. And it makes sense. There's nothing else you can add to that moment. What else can you add to that moment other than say, I don't know, the government getting involved. And that would just like be too much of a change. Another problem people have with the lack of Uncle Ben is Iron Man. Most fans see Tony as Peter's replacement father, which is why a lot of people on the internet have called Peter Iron Man Jr. Which is justifiable since in Civil War, Peter meets Iron Man in just like a shock that he even knows who he is. And after all the things he did in Civil War, Peter clearly looks up to Tony in some way. Like, you see this throughout Homecoming where he keeps trying to call Tony, and it's almost in a way like a father-son fight. Where you see the son wanting to like hang out with his dad or just like trying to talk to him. But it makes sense in, in Homecoming because at the time, nobody knew his secret identity except him. He couldn't talk to Aunt May about his secret identity. He couldn't talk to any friends of his at the start of the movie. And it makes sense why he just wanted to keep talking to Tony because he looks up to Tony. And even in Far From Home... He has a lot of the same feelings to Tony as Uncle Ben's death, where he is shocked by the death because, of course, it happened during a time where he, was, he thought it was out for like five minutes, but it turns out it was five years, and he's just trying to deal with the aftermath. 
it does make sense why he feels like that for Tony. People might say the same, why didn't he mourn Uncle Ben? Because, well, the movie didn't show his dad. It doesn't need to show his dad. What do you add by showing Uncle Ben's death? And sure, some will say that this movie relies on you having to see the other films beforehand in order to understand who was Uncle Ben. But the thing is, Uncle Ben is not a major character in the MCU. It's sometimes for the best just not to have the character in there. Because, frankly, this movie works without Uncle Ben. You do not need Uncle Ben in this film. In the same way, you don't need Gwen Stacy or Mary Jane Watson. But we'll get to that. Let's talk about the suitcase. Because that was the one people were mad about for some weird reason. Now, of course, in Far From Home, when going on vacation, Peter carries around a suitcase that happens to have the initials for Ben Parker. And he uses that suitcase for most of his trip to Europe, until at some point it gets destroyed. And in the film, Peter never reacts to it getting destroyed. And it makes sense, he's not gonna think about a suitcase while he's in the middle of a crisis. And frankly, it's just a suitcase. Nothing more. It only could have any emotional attachment if May explicitly told him it was Ben's or we were shown a flashback. It is as memorable as Tony's Door the Explorer watch in Iron Man 3. You're not going to remember that unless you actually see him use it again. But then let's get to another complaint people have with the film. Flash Thompson. Don't know who Flash Thompson is? Well in the films, he's the jerk. Let me just set up the comparison. Flash Thompson in almost every adaptation of Spider-Man is Peter's high school bully. But ironically, he loves Spider-Man. He's a big fan of the guy. In the comics, some animated adaptations, and the first two film series, he is a sports jock. He plays a sport, like community football or basketball. But in the MCU films, he is instead a stereotypical rich kid. And frankly, it made an even bigger jerk. And strangely, funnier. Within the MCU films, he's a fully-fledged character. He shows up how rich he is, enjoys bullying Peter verbally, but is also heavily implied to have a terrible relationship with his parents, especially in Far From Home where his parents don't pick him up. And the thing is, he's actually far more memorable because of that. There's a reason why I can recall the Flash Thompson in the MCU films than in, say, any other film. Now, of course, People will bring up, but what about the Flash Thompson from the first Spider-Man film? Okay, but here's the thing. In that movie, the 2002 Spider-Man film, Thompson barely played a role. He was there in the first few scenes, he was his high school bully, they fought once, and then right after they graduate, he never shows up again until the third film. That to me is a great example of how bland the character is. They weren't going to use him that much, so he only appears in one scene, and that's it. He is literally a one-scene wonder. If anything, he had more to do in his in his role than Gwen Stacy ever did in Spider-Man 3. Flash Thompson in these films, he's given a personality. He is more proactive. It helps his character. Because in the other film trilogies, he didn't do that much. In the Sam Raimi films, again, he only appears in one scene in the first film, breaks up with Mary Jane, and then you never see him again until the third Spider-Man film. In the Amazing Spider-Man films, he was probably the bully for a few scenes in the first film, and I can barely recall him in the second one. 
Flash Thompson has frankly never been such a major character. Like, if anything, I think I can recall him from an episode of the of the animated 90s Spider-Man, where he was maybe just like a friend of Peter's, or just like a bigger jerk. Maybe? He's honestly not that memorable of a character. And, and even then, like, there are other shows and annotations where they just change the character outright, from Peter's high school bully to Agent Benham. The films have made Flash Thompson a much more entertaining character. And frankly, seeing the other adaptations, you can understand why he did, because he's just a boring character. Also, they're in a STEM school, so why would a STEM school have school jocks? Admittedly, I've never been to a STEM school, so I don't know if they have good athletic programs. But let's get to the other complaint that people tend to critique a lot, and not Tom Holland, we'll get to him in a minute. Zendaya. There are people who are probably disappointed, or angry, that in this film series, Peter's love interest is neither Mary Jane or Gwen Stacy, but instead a new original character called Michelle Jones, who is nicknamed MJ. And frankly, the issues I've seen for why she's a terrible character just don't add up. Some of them are just, she's not Mary Jane, or this isn't Gwen Stacy, or not my MJ. To me, it actually is beneficial. Like with Flash Thompson, it allows him to do something with a character. In the case of Flash Thompson, you had this character with an almost blank slate, and you can literally do whatever you want with it. With MJ, you have this distinct original character who has no backstory, who has no past portrayals, and you can do whatever you want with the character. And you know what? Zendaya does a great job with the character. The films can present a distinct original character not limited by either the comics or past media portrayals. The criticism is odd considering the lack of such critiques when Gwen barely did anything in Spider-Man 3 or Mary Jane never appeared in the Amazing films. Zendaya is also really good. She can do whatever she wants with the character. But let's get to the two that people tend to also get mad about, but you rarely hear much about. Okay, actually the one that's the biggest, Tom Holland himself. Holland has received a lot of criticism with his performance. Unlike either Andrew Garfield or Tobey Maguire beforehand, he does not differentiate the between Peter and Spider-Man. You see that with Tobey or Andrew, they often change their voice up when they were Peter or Spider-Man, with Toby, it was like more heroic. Over Andrew, he had a lower voice. But with, with Holland, no change at all. He just the same tone throughout his performance. And it's actually a great thing. He plays both roles with a lot of curiosity and joy. As someone amazed by the fantastical events he's confronted with. From doing a flip to going to space. He also doesn't alter his voice in any way, something which even the films parodied, when in one scene, he changes his voice to something like a disordered Darth Vader-Bane hybrid, and the character wondering, why are you doing that? It's, it's a really funny thing, and frankly, it helps him make more of a reliable character. But another complaint people have is of Peter back in high school. This is something that is actually helpful for the MCU. Here's the problem with the MCU. Peter is a teenager, and the MCU really badly needs superheroes who are teenagers. Because the problem is, they really don't have any. You haven't seen any Avengers movie where they have, Hey look, there's Iron Man, Captain America, and Squirrel Girl. Because then you'll be asking questions like, who's Squirrel Girl? And sure, do they need to add them? Yes, yes they do. 
and this is a sad thing that most of the shows that tend to have these obscure Marvel teen superhero characters don't get popular. Or at least, don't stay on the air for long enough. And for now, Spider-Man is the only one they have. The only teen superhero they have. At least until the X-Men are integrated somehow into the MCU. More people are aware of Spider-Man than say, Squirrel Girl, Cloak and Dagger, or Franklin Richards. And if you don't know who Franklin Richards is, look it up, you're gonna be surprised. The films have a lot of positives. Aunt May, for example, is far more proactive. Now sure, in the amazing film, she was more active in Peter's life, but she didn't know his secret identity, which is always something that I feel has held the character back. She doesn't know who Peter's alter ego is, so every time she's wondering, oh, where's Peter probably doing his job? But no, in these films, she now knows his secret identity, and that is actually a great thing. It lets her be more proactive, and it's really fun just like seeing Aunt May now knowing Peter's secret identity as Spider-Man. Is it surprising? Yes, but it's a great thing. It allows her to be more proactive. And as for the villains, it is surprising that Marvel has avoided reusing villains. So far, the only ones they've used are the Vulture, the Shocker, and Mysterio. Coincidentally, both Vulture and Mysterio were supposed to appear in the unproduced Spider-Man 4. And so far, it's great to see them use all these characters. Now, Marvel might have to eventually use another villain from the Raimi films or the Amazing films, but the way they've done it so far has worked out really well. The Vulture was a surprisingly good menace in Homecoming, and Mysterio, they somehow managed to make it work. The problem with Mysterio as a character is always that he felt like he wouldn't work in these films because his entire shtick relied on, oh, special effects, and in a film that already has a lot of special effects, that would just seem really hard to make fake special effects. If anything, to me, the only problem with these characters is just the Vulture, who they changed the character a lot. In the comics, he's supposed to be this old man who just decides to fight back. But in the Homecoming film, he's basically Batman with wings. That's not to take away from Michael Keaton's performance. He's not, he plays a great villain. It's surprising how Keaton can play a bad guy. Sure, he can play Batman, he can play a crazed, washed-up actor. But a bad guy? He's surprisingly good at it. Now, Far From Home left the films on a cliffhanger. One that really opens the door for a lot of possibilities. Because, I'm just going to say it right now. If you haven't seen Far From Home, spoiler alert. Far From Home ended with Mysterio leaving basically a final middle finger to Peter. Just before he died, Mysterio went on this whole rant claiming that, Oh no, Spider-Man is about to kill me. He basically outs him. He says, Spider-Man is really Peter Parker. And that was surprising. More surprising than Aunt May finding out Peter was Spider-Man. Because at least there, that was bound to happen. But with this, this was shocking. I mean, out of all the ways to unmask his identity, that was the most unexpected. It was refreshingly original. Now, most people might say, well, what now? Because the thing with the MCU is, this is a film series that has mostly avoided secret identities. You, you see at the end of Iron Man, Tony just outs himself. He doesn't want to keep a secret identity. He doesn't want to say, oh, he's his bodyguard. No, he just says, I am Iron Man. None of the characters have secret identities. Oh, sure. 
people know who they are, but you can see that nobody cares. And it works for the MCU, because what's the point of a secret identity? So that's my thoughts on the Tom Holland Spider-Man films. Are they great? Yes. Would I call them better than, say, the other Spider-Man films? That is debatable. There are, of course, positives and negatives, and it would be unfair to say one is better than the other, because the problem is that each one has their own issue. The Tobey Maguire films have a problem with Tobey Maguire's acting and Spider-Man 3 as a whole. The Andrew Garfield films are fine, but then the amazing Spider-Man 2 manages to ruin any goodwill it had from the first film. And with Tom Holland, it's overall good. Homecoming was really good, Far From Home was great, and out of all the Spider-Man films I've seen, it's the best one so far. Live action. When it comes to overall, Into the Spider-Verse is overall my favorite. But I think all the criticism to Tom Holland is really unfair. It just seems more like fans of either the Tobey Maguire films or Andrew Garfield films being bitter that their Spider-Man wasn't in the MCU. And it kind of makes sense why neither of them was there, because Maguire, too old. Andrew Garfield, do you really want to see him back in high school just so he could be with the Avengers? You can't even connect his films to the MCU, because The Amazing Spider-Man and the Avengers were supposed to take place in the same city in that same year within the same time frame. And it really doesn't work. Why would there be two major incidents in New York City and neither of them acknowledged each other? But it was just my thoughts on it. The Tom Holland films are really good. While they may not be on Disney+, Plus, they're worth watching. Now let's move on to a segment where I talk about The Return of Jafar. We all have a bad Disney movie, and some may have a bad Disney sequel. Disney surprisingly has a lot of them. Way before Frozen 2 or Ralph Breaks the Internet, there used to be a bunch of direct-to-video sequels to Disney films. And they were, for the most part, really bad. There were some good ones, some bad ones, but I think the bad ones outnumber the good ones. And even then, like, some of them are just atrocious. A a good example of a bad Disney movie will look no further than the very first one. Way back in the far-off year of 1994, Disney released The Return of Jafar. And in a way, it foretold how bad these movies would be. Now, of course, direct-to-video sequels are terrible. It doesn't matter whether they're live-action or animated, or if you can get either one, all, or even half of the cast, it'll still be terrible. Because you can clearly tell, this movie was made for money. At least with the first one, you can tell, oh, they have a reason, they have a message, they have someone to tell. Not the sequel. The sequel is, we made money, let's make some more. And the thing can be said about The Return of Jafar, a movie that you could tell at one point it was going to be a good idea, but it failed miserably. Clearly at some point somebody told them, hey, what if we do all the things that didn't happen in the first movie? Because there's a lot of bad elements about The Return of Jafar. Yeah, as the title indicates, the bad guy returns, and his revenge is really, really bad. It also doesn't help that in this sequel to Aladdin, you know, the movie that had great music, great animation, and Robin Williams, this has none of the above. The music is terrible, the animation looks like a Saturday morning cartoon because it was supposed to be a cartoon before it became a movie, and Robin Williams is not in this movie. He does not play the genie. We'll go through each of them one by one, but first, the music. 
how it looks at some point that they were clearly trying to make up for, like, say, oh, Jafar didn't have a song, Yaga didn't have a song, and... Yeah, like, with Jafar, it makes sense. The song he he sings in this movie is really good, but then you hear Iago, and let's just say, you do not want to hear Gilbert Gottfried sing ever again. And then there's the animation, which... I actually looked up information about this film, The Return of Jafar, and turns out it's supposed to be the first few episodes of the Aladdin TV show, which did air, and if you've never seen it, it's okay. It brings in a lot of magic and elements and a lot of fun things that would make Aladdin a great TV show, and it's watchable. I wouldn't say it's good, but it's watchable. Still not on Disney Plus as of this recording. And then there's... Well, the fact that Robin Williams is not in this film. Most people may know about how he, that Robin Williams and Disney had a falling out that essentially led him to leave the company and not, re and not work for them for a few years. And this came out during that time. And in this film, the voice of Genie is played by Dan Castellaneta. And if you've never heard of Dan Castellaneta, he's Homer on The Simpsons and plays a fifth of the characters on that show. And you can clearly tell that Castellaneta is trying to sound like Robin Williams, but for the most part, he just sounds like Homer. Because there's a difference. You can clearly tell the difference when Robin Williams speaks and then when someone impersonating Robin Williams speaks. And with Dan Castellaneta, maybe it was because he was playing Homer for a few years already, but you can clearly tell he's not Robin Williams. You can clearly tell it's Homer J. Simpson. And whenever he goes into a funny accent, or does some other impersonation, it's somebody else. He could be, say, oh, Groundskeeper Willie at one point, or a Scottish uh, stereotype. Like, he, he plays all these stereotypes on The Simpsons, and then you can hear them on, in Aladdin whenever he tries to play it up, because it's really obvious. And this, that's a sad thing. Like, Dan Castellaneta is a great voice actor, but, like, if you hear him on The Simpsons, and then you watch Aladdin, the TV show, or The Return of Jafar, you can immediately say, that's Dan Castellaneta. Everything else on the voice cast, like, most of the cast returns, and they do decent performances, so the material is terrible. And you can clearly tell, all these people were clearly paid to come back, and that's it. If you want to make a continuation of Aladdin, Fine, that works, but it really needs to justify itself for why do we need a sequel to Aladdin and why in this format? Even if it were a TV show episode, maybe it could work, but otherwise it's just really bad. Because again, bad animation, bad music, Robin Williams is not in this, and yeah, that's a major sticking point. There are other problems this movie has, such as the duets, because you do not want to hear Jasmine and Iago sing a duet, because Someone is clearly trying, the other's not. You can pretty much tell who isn't. It's just a bad film, and ironically, the sequel to that film, Aladdin the King of Thieves, is a really good sequel. It's weird how there's The Return of Jafar, which transitions the film from the first film to the TV show, and then there's Aladdin the King of Thieves, which essentially serves as the finale to the series. And strangely, that movie is better. It's weird, it's a third part of a move anime trilogy, and it's better than the second one. The Return of Jafar is just a terrible film. And you know what's even better? On Disney Plus and on the rare hard-to-find Blu-ray edition of the movie, which I think you can only get if you subscribe to a movie club, it's not even in the right format. Because on when it originally came out on VHS, it was produced in a 4x3 aspect ratio. Basically like a classic 90s TV. 
but nobody has 90s TV anymore. They have it in this really weird cropped format where you can clearly tell they edited the top and the bottom off. And it just looks really weird, especially when the character is supposed to be, oh, he's superimposing, but his head is cut off by the screen. Or how at some points it was supposed to be like a full body shot of the characters and yet like the top of their head and their legs are cut off. It just looks really odd like this was not framed correctly. It looks really bad and the sad thing is there's no way to get the original version unless you either own the old cassette tape or have one of those hard to find DVDs that came on the mid 2000s which even then are rare because it's hard to find the Return of Jafar or King of Thieves available on any physical format because for the most part or they're either hard to find, out of print, or only on Disney Plus. And it's really weird how you can get the Return of Jafar on Disney Plus, but not the TV show. So yeah, those are my thoughts on the Return of Jafar. Unless you're going to watch every single Aladdin film, don't. And before you tell me, well, what about the live-action Aladdin? Here's the thing. That live-action film is still by far better than The Return of Jafar. For anyone says that, oh, uh, the live-action Aladdin is the worst for one of 50 billion dumb reasons, like Will Smith, watch The Return of Jafar and please tell me why that film is superior to the live-action remake. Because I can safely tell you, there is nothing redeeming about The Return of Jafar. Nothing. And as for Land of the King of Thieves, it's a great film. You should go check it out on Disney Plus. Though admittedly, it's also in that really badly cropped widescreen. Let's wrap up today's show with another segment from my radio show. Prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, I had planned to marathon the music from the 007 films. From Dr. No, all the way to No Time to Die. I originally intended to play the songs alongside brief reviews of their respective films. After the latter film was postponed, I chose to reschedule later in the year, but still had somewhat of a test run just prior to the show going on hiatus. For the test run, I chose to highlight one film from each actor who played James Bond. George Lazenby's case is one film. While I may not be able to play the songs, I can still play the reviews. In the original radio broadcast, I would set up the song, play it, and then do my review. While I managed to edit out most of the setup, I have to reintroduce the first three reviews, since they were heavily attached to the song themselves. First up, You Only Live Twice, starring Sean Connery. The film itself is... Okay, uh, the Sean Connery films, it's not exactly the best, but it's just an okay film. And of the three films that served as Sean Connery's final Bond film, it's okay. A admittedly, it's better than Diamonds Are Forever and uh, Never Say Never Again, which is a whole nother story. Up next, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, the lone 007 film starring George Lassenby. Considering it was Lassenby's only film, he does an okay job. He does a good job at playing 007. And admittedly, it's hard to critique him compared to the other Bonds because he only did this one film and that was it. I mean, for the most part, he is different from Connery. He joked about it in, in, in the film. Like, one of the first lines was, this never happened to the other fellow. And it is fun. Like, it, it's a fun film and it has one of the more tragic endings to a... a uh, to the franchise and in a way this film predates Daniel Craig's tone by decades because you look at this film and think 
it was probably by the same people who liked the Daniel, either wrote the Daniel Craig films or were inspired to write the Daniel Craig films. But that's the best way to describe it. It's a great film and one that's definitely worth watching. The Spy Who Loved Me, starring Roger Moore. It's perfect and one of the most signature 007 films. If you've never seen a Bond film, that's a good one to start with. Sure, you're going to start with Dr. No in, in order, but The Spy Who Loved Me is just a great film. It's one of those ones you can watch over and over again, and you'll never get sick of it. It has a lot of great action. It has a lot of great moments. It even has Jaws. Not the whale, the bad guy is Jaws. And it's one of those great films in the franchise that shows you everything the Bond franchise was at that time, but at the same time shows you how great it can be. And it's just full of great humor and, and action, especially the climax in which Bond like gets a lot of, of soldiers to team up with him and just fight back. And it's one of those great films that I highly recommend watching, especially if you, if you don't want to watch only like one Bond film per, per actor. It's just a great film. And finally, the remaining three 007s. Now, after Roger Moore's run, there was the short-lived Timothy Dalton run. But unlike George Lathenby, Dalton got to make two films. One which was really good, tolerable, and the other which was the most boring Bond film ever. Like, if anything, only Quantum of Solace is far more boring. Like, you want an example of five boring Bond films? They are, in order of good to bad, and that's the thing a lot, it would be, say, Die Another Day, then you have You Only Live Twice, Never Say Never Again, and maybe Casino Royale from the 1960s, and then finally, like... License to Kill and Quantum of Solace. Okay, there was six of them, but like you get the point. Now, The Living Daylight was an attempt by the franchise to retool Bond to a grittier, darker Bond. And that was before Daniel Craig again, I have to point out. So it's really interesting how many times they've gone back to the dark and edgy Bond. They tried it with Roger Moore for a while, then they stopped. They tried it with Lassenby, and that failed. Then they tried it with Timothy Dalton, and that failed too. But Daniel Craig worked. Living Daylights, compared to, say, other Bond films, is watchable and has a lot of good action. It's just a case of whether or not you really like Timothy Dalton. Because of the two films he made, Living Daylights is the better one. It's not boring. It keeps your attention. And it's just a case of where, if you really, really like Dalton, you'll like this film. Other than that... Don't watch License to Kill, it's just boring. Like, maybe if you have nothing to do for three hours, just watch that. Like, it's a movie that, it won't put you to sleep, but, like, you're not going to be able to do much else. Now, a lot of people talk about how great GoldenEye is, how bad Diner Day was, or how Denise Richard is not a scientist and the world is not enough. But nobody brings up Tomorrow Never Dies, a film that, in a lot of ways, seems very... Uh, uh, very predict like it predicted a lot of things happen in the future. Like the main premise of that film was an a, um, an evil news mogul trying to predict the news, which is prophetic in a lot of ways. Now there were interestingly two theme songs made for Tomorrow Never Dies, one by Katie Lang, and another by Cheryl Crow. The Katie Lang one was actually supposed to be the theme song until MGM told the filmmakers that they had Cheryl Crow. So 
the Katie Lang song was still included and just renamed Surrender and playing the end credits, while the Cheryl Crow song played as the opening. And the weird part is the Katie Lang song was actually part of the, of the composition of the film, whereas the Cheryl Crow song only appears in the opening. It is not replayed at any point in the film. That film is, is, is a great film and one that really no one talks about but is really good. And it's to the point because a lot of people just think too much about Dying Another Day or how bad it was. And, like, nobody talks about Tomorrow Never Dies, which is a good film to watch. It's fun. It's enjoyable. And one of the best, one of the better Bond films to check out. It's not as groundbreaking as, say, Casino Royale or GoldenEye or Goldfinger, but it's really good. And one that I really recommend people check out. It's a great film. Now, when it comes to Daniel Craig's films, I will admit I'm mixed on them. A lot of them have their good moments, but a lot of them at the same time also have a lot of problems. Of those films, Skyfall is the best. Not only is it a love letter to the franchise celebrating the 50th anniversary of the franchise, but also it's a great film. It's centered around a revenge story. It's a great plot centering around not only Bond, but also M. And it's just an overall great film which at no point does it feel forced or padded out. It's A lot of it works, and that was something I appreciate when it comes to this film. Because a lot of the other Daniel Craig films are hit and miss. Like Casino Royale is 20 minutes too long. Quantum of Solace felt an elongated epilogue. And Spectre, well, Spectre, I, I, I will admit at points I was, it was tolerable, but... Like I told a lot of people, the best part of Spectre was Sam Smith. And unlike a lot of people who think that he did not deserve that Oscar, I say he did. Same thing with Adele, who earned every single award she won for this song. Like, she won the Academy Award, the Golden Globe, and the Grammy for this song. And it's an unusual thing because Bond songs do not normally get nominated and win Oscars. And it happened already consecutive times. Adele won for Skyfall, and Sam Smith won for Writings on the Wall from Spectre. Who knows if Billy Eilish will be able to do it next. But as for Skyfall itself, it's the best Daniel Craig film of, of his run, and the best double film from Daniel Craig's run, and I highly recommend it. And that is all the time we have for today's show. If you would like to know when the next episode comes out, remember to follow or subscribe to our podcast on your favorite audio streamer. You can also follow me on Twitter at Mr. Joel Garcia 9. Until next time, thank you for listening. <laughs>